go on trials and temptations? And she, I said, yeah, I remember. I'm surprised you do. And uh, uh, she said, well, I thought the sermon was kind of, you know, okay. And then, and then uh, last week I decided I would listen to it again. And she said it was very, very helpful. And I said, your situation changed, didn't it? Because um, interestingly, sometimes our situations do change, and God uses uh, his word at that time for a particular issue we're dealing with. So I pray that today as we look at Luke chapter 5, this will be encouraging for you. Um, verses 17 through 26. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be focused. Father, we can't throw away the distractions that happen in worship, but Father, help us to um, respond to them appropriately and help us to focus on you knowing that you are here in the room with us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you a little, quick little background on, um, on this passage there was a period between the writing of the last book of the Old Testament and the writing of the first book of the New Testament that's called the intertestamental period, which is a, probably a pretty good name. Um, there we find that there was a movement in Judaism that became targeted toward the middle class of Judaism. Um, the Sanhedrin and the San Sadducees were mainly from the upper crust of the Jews. And so a sort of offshoot to address those needs of the middle class was born, and it was called the Pharisees. Um, because they were from the middle class themselves, and because they spoke in and among the rulers of the middle class, they became popular to the, to the masses. This popularity gave them power. They, in essence, were the PCA pastors of the day. They were the ones that really cared about the Word of God, they studied it all the time. They wanted it applied to the people. They didn't want it to be something just dead, but they wanted it, the people to live a holy life. But this popularity also came with, became very dangerous um, because they had the public's ear. And pretty much whatever they would say, people would respond to. So um, this power turned them into gradually over time, over that 400 years, uh, control freaks. So they started uh, to develop a system of rules and regulations to improve upon the scriptures. Um, to some, and sometimes actually to put in place of God's law. And as time went on, they became even more binding in some ways than the scriptures themselves, and the people listened to them. The Pharisees had their ear. So then we come to this passage in Luke chapter 5, and we find um, basically two miracles smashed together. And let's start reading in verse 17. One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem, and the Lord's healing power was strong with them. So it's interesting how Luke says from every village of Galilee, Judea, and even from Jerusalem, this shows the Pharisees' concern of what's going on. They saw this new phenomenon called Jesus coming in, and they'd heard all sorts of things, and so they were coming to check him out themselves. Um, they cared about the glory of God and for the good people, 
but the Pharisees also cared about themselves and their position they had with the people. So in some ways, um, their livelihood and their own glory came into contrast with Jesus in their minds, and some battle lines were drawn. And so this is the first mention of the Pharisees in the book of Luke. And then we find in verse 18, some men came carrying a paralyzed man with a, on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside of Jesus, but they could not reach him. Because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and took off some tiles, and they lowered the sick man on, on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. See, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the young man, to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your heart? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, We have seen amazing things today. May God bless the reading of his word. Napoleon Bonaparte said this, I know men, I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man because between him and, other, and every other person in the world, there's no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but upon what did our genius rest? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. And I think that's true today. There are millions of people that would die for Jesus, and many are dying for Jesus today around the world. Luke, as you remember, was a physician, and he's the author of this book. And it's been said, a minister sees men at their best. I don't really believe that, but that's what the saying goes. A lawyer sees men at their worst, and a physician sees men as they really are. Luke's gospel and the story of Jesus was written from a kind, compassionate perspective. And to my mind, uh, it's one of my favorite Gospels. Um, if you want to see Jesus as the Messiah, read Matthew. If you want to see him as the powerful Savior, read Mark. If you want to see him as the Son of God and no, no doubt deity, read John. But if you want to see Jesus as the man for all men, read the Gospel of Luke. It sometimes has been called the Gospel of the Underdog. Um, as we study this little photograph clip in Luke's mind that became scripture, um, we see some players in this drama. Uh, first, there's Jesus, who is teaching the people, and he'd done that on a regular basis, and evidently he's in a, in a house, and from what we can tell, the Pharisees got there about the time everybody got to the house, and they're, in my mind, kind of on the edges. They're in the Baptist row, you know, on the, on the backside, and they are there, and then everybody else is kind of crammed inside, and it's packed. Um, then there are the Pharisees, you know, surrounding the outside. And then, why did the Pharisees actually come? Well, remember, they're the educated, very sincere, very moral, very uptight 
and they saw themselves as the guardians of the law of God. But they came because they heard rumors about Jesus. They heard about his healing, about his teaching, and they had to hear it from themselves. And they saw themselves as self-appointed board of inquisition, and they came to hear, and they were looking for anything that would indicate to them that he was wrong, and that he, that he was a Charlemagne, that he, I'm Charlemagne, like a charlatan. I had Charlemagne in my mind. But that he was false, and they were going to protect their people. But there's also the third group that's often over, that's, you know, there and on the side there. You can't see them if you're in the room. And they are five very determined men. Um, one lays on a stretcher, and there's one on each corner. And together they're determined to get to Jesus. And, but there's no way getting through the crowd. You know, there's not an aisle, a center aisle to come down. Um, so they creatively said, how, do we, how are we going to do that? And I can just hear the conversation, you know, I got an idea. What is it? Let's go up the steps. This house uh, itself was typical in the days. It was a one-room house. It was kind of built into a hill, wooden big beams on the top. There was a, a flat roof and stairs up on the top because they would use the roof as a part of their living space. So Jesus is teaching inside the house. The room's crowded, eager listeners leaning forward to catch every word. He's in the midst of teaching. It's interesting that Luke doesn't tell us what he's teaching because this event overshadowed that. Around the walls are the Pharisees, silent, impassive, inscrutable, no emotion on their face. Suddenly there's a noise. Above them, dirt starts falling from the ceiling, and then there's a shaft of light that comes down. Somebody's knocked a hole in the roof. Jesus stops. And he looks up, and in my mind, he smiles because he knows what's going to happen. I mean, can't you just see that? And then, then all of a sudden, the beam of light gets bigger as they're pulling the, the planks or the prawns or whatever's on top of the roofing material, and it gets a bigger hole, and then you look up and you see four faces bending down and looking down. I, I don't think anybody really says anything. What is this going on? Dust is in the room, shattered, hole gets bigger. Suddenly the four men lower down this stretcher with his paralytic on it. On the, on the stretcher, I would see the, uh, imagine the man lies silently, but he must have been in pretty bad shape physically for them to desperately want them, him to see Jesus on that day. And as he's lowered down, he looks to Jesus somewhat expectantly. And in the crowded room, they make enough space for the, the stretcher to come down. And a hush falls over the room, and the anticipation is, what will Jesus do? Verse 20 says, Luke gives the answer, When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Immediately we spot something unusual. He says, we saw, he saw their faith. Whose faith? Doubtless it was the faith of the five men, the four guys that, that lowered them down and the, the fellow on the stretcher. The four friends are an example of intercessory faith. They were going to do whatever they could do to bring their friend to Jesus. And Jesus saw that. The guy on the stretcher, 
Everybody in the room could see his ailment, paralyzed. But there, Jesus tells us the unexpected. And this is the key to the whole scene. Jesus didn't heal the man first. Instead, he said, your sins are forgiven. Why? Why didn't he heal him first? Why did he say your sins are forgiven? Because the man had a deeper need than his physical healing. You see, there's more than one kind of paralysis. There's a paralysis of the soul and a paralysis of the body. And the paralysis of the soul that's dead in your trespasses and sin is worse than the paralysis of the body. And so he was sicker than he knew because his soul was, the, the ailment in his soul was caused by his sin. And this fifth man acts as an object lesson for us in that if there was no sin, he would have never been sick. If we, like Hudson said, he was sick and couldn't come last week, it's because of your sin, <laughs> right? Oh, by the way, those of you that are old, it's because of your sin. If you got gray hair or no hair, it's because of your sin. If you got wrinkles, it's because of your sin. Oh, by the way, do you know one of the Pharisees' rules they brought up because they didn't want people to work on the Sabbath is that a woman could not look in a mirror on the Sabbath because then she'd be tempted to pull out gray hair. And that would be a work, and they couldn't do it. So that was one of, of the many rules. Romans 3.23 is still true for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have the same need, and Jesus nails it and say we have a need for forgiveness. Jesus is teaching by the, this lesson by the order in which he deals with someone. Our greatest problems are spiritual, not physical. As important as healing is, it's not as important as forgiveness. We need what Jesus gave this poor man. We need to have our sins forgiven. Now, I really appreciate that every Sunday in this church, there's an acknowledgement that we're sinners, and there's the need for forgiveness. It's good to be reminded every week, and I love that y'all have a time of silent prayer when we go, okay, yes. God, I'm honest with you. This was my sin this week. I need to be forgiven right now. At this point, the focus shifts from the man on the cot and his sins being forgiven to the Pharisees on the outside of the room. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began to think to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. The reasoning is clear. Only God can forgive sins. He says, this man is claiming to do what only God can do. Obviously, this man is a blasphemer, and it's pretty simple. We found what we needed to find. This fellow needs to be killed because in that day, blasphemy was a capital offense. Even though the Jews couldn't kill somebody, it was a capital offense. So they, but it's interesting that the Pharisees are smart guys, like PCA pastors are supposed to be. And they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He's saying that he was the Son of God with the power to forgive sins. Um, they, do, they do not have a category for someone that's walking around to be able to be the Son of God. They can see Jesus as a healer, yes. That fit in their box. He could be a teacher, yes. That fits. He could be a wise man. That fits in our box. 
but the Son of God from heaven that can forgive sins, there is no box for that in their mind. But their box is just too small. They have no room for this, I want to say new idea, but it's not a new idea because they knew the Bible. Their Messiah was coming. They knew that, but they simply said it could not be this person. Their problem was that they had Jesus in a box and their box was too small. Jesus was bigger than their box. The most unfortunate part of the story is that the Pharisees didn't have to make that mistake. They could have responded with, I think he might be the one. They could have left room in their doubt for truth. They had all the tools at, at, and to come to the right conclusion. They knew the Old Testament predictions. Yet with all that was going on for them, they came to the wrong conclusion. The issue is sharply drawn. Who is this man? But the story's not over. The first miracle is forgiveness of sins. And then the second miracle, it says in verse 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question in your hearts? It's easier to say your sins, question in your hearts. It is easier to say your, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and stand, said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Jesus does something that these legal lawyers of the law would understand. He answers a question with a few more questions, a technique that is used even today. And he asks the question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And they immediately would say, rise up and walk. Because anybody can say your sins are forgiven because that's an invisible healing, right? If you pray today to ask God to forgive you of your sins, guess what? And you did it in sincerity. God did that miracle in your life today in this room. But it's invisible. We can't. I don't know if you really prayed that or not. And I don't know if God did it for you. He did it for me. That's, but then he says, well, I'm going to say stand up and walk. That is a visible miracle that should verify the invisible miracle of forgiveness. And you won't be able to contradict this paralyzed man getting up. So Jesus has this test for them. and says, what do you think? They didn't answer. If I'm a blasphemer, I won't be able to heal this man's body. Verse 24, so he says, So I will prove to you that the Son of Man, which is a, a title for the Son of God, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. The healing itself is immediate, complete, public, the four men that lowered him down knew he was sick, knew he had, was paralyzed. Everyone in the room could look at him, even if they didn't know him personally, and say, yes, he's paralyzed. 
And then everybody in the room could see all of a sudden he's not paralyzed and he picks up and that mat. People make room where there is no room and he does what he's told. He goes home. I would think with a smile on his face, could you imagine being paralyzed and not being able to do anything for yourself and all of a sudden you're walking home? Maybe even skipping home. The point is clear, both healing and forgiveness flow from the word of Jesus. He is the son of man. Only one detail remains. Verse 26, everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe and they praised God exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. And the word, the Greek word that's used for those amazing things is where we get the word from, the word paradox. We have literally seen something that's contrary to our expectations. We, when we came today to hear the teaching of Jesus, we didn't think we were going to see this. Meanwhile, everybody else was saying, we're, this is amazing, this is wonderful. And the Pharisees are silent. What's the main point of the story? It's not the miracle of him, this man walking out. The main point of this miracle story is who is the man? Who is this man? What are you going to do with Jesus? What does your heart say? C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity uh, a famous paragraph, and I'm going to read it for you. It sums up this whole concept. He says, I am here trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, C.S. Lewis says. A man who has, was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So Luke gives us this story for us to respond to, and it's this. Will you believe that Jesus can forgive sins, that he can forgive your sins? Will you, will you, it was obvious. It should be obvious to us. Who is the man? Two miracles, forgiveness and healing. So I'm going to leave you with the question. What are you going to do with Jesus? How will you respond? If you're a believer, it should be very encouraging that God is still forgiving your sins and he's still worthy of all your praise and you ought to be amazed every day for who he is. Let's pray together. Father, we're faced with a great question on which we all must answer sooner or later. So Father, I pray for those who've not trusted you yet that they might be able to, in their mind, visualize a paralyzed man 
being forgiven first and then healed second. And Father, would you heal them? And Father, I thank you that you have people in this world and you've called us to be like those four fellows that made a creative move to put a hole in a roof. And Father, would we care enough about our friends to bring them to Jesus, even if a roof stands in the way. In Jesus' name, amen.